You're listening to Getting Lit with Linda Mora, the podcast where we welcome you to get lit. Canadian lit, that is. Join Linda as she talks about authors in Canada and sometimes with them, using her expertise to shed some light on recent and not-so-recent writers. And now, get ready for Getting Lit with Linda. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Getting Lit with Linda. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge that both Stephen Collis, today's guest, and I are working out of Simon Fraser University in Burnaby. And we respectfully acknowledge that Simon Fraser is located on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, tsleil and Coquitlam. One brief housekeeping note today, and this is a shout-out to Kyle from Toronto for sending us that lovely note about the podcast. We love the authors you recommended to us, and we're going to try to integrate some of those authors in future episodes. And now for today's episode. I picked up Collis's most recent collection of poetry when I arrived at Simon Fraser University for research. I do have friends here, but I like to surround myself with books, some of which I also consider friends. And his was definitely one of these. I arrived at a time when it was unusually sunny for Vancouver, when I was hearing about the heat domes and the forest fires and other environmental threats, when we should probably uniformly turn our attention to this most urgent crisis, but when instead we're still wrangling our way out of a pandemic and worrying about a war. So I picked up this collection of poetry with this persistent sense of anxiety and unease that is the hallmark of the age. And what I found in this collection was some sense of solace and connection, a like spirit that was experiencing these apprehensions and addressed with a lightness and weight, with humor and earnestness. I've spoken about Rita Wong's collection, Forage, a couple of episodes ago, and I would urge my listeners out there to pick up these two as companion pieces, as a means to consider what's happening to all of us right now. Let me introduce you to Stephen Collis, because if you don't know his work, I really urge you to become acquainted with it. He's the author of seven books of poetry, including On the Material, That book won the BC Book Prize in 2010, and it was preceded by An Archive, published by New Star in 2005, and The Commons, published in 2008 by Talon Books. He then went on to publish To the Barricades by Talon in 2013, Decomp, co-authored with Jordan Scott and published by Coach House in 2013, Once in a Blockadia, published by Talon in 2016, and, of course, A History of the Theories of Rain. This book was published by Talon in 2021, and it was nominated this past year for a Governor General's Literary Award for Poetry. My listeners will know that I don't put much stock in awards because I think there are some really good books that don't get the kind of distinction or attention that they merit. This one certainly did merit it. As an activist and social critic, Collis was involved in the Occupy movement, and so his pieces of writing in relation to that were collected in a book called Dispatches from the Occupation. 
and it got him into a spot of trouble, shall we say, when he was sued by the oil company Kinder Morgan, whose lawyers entered his poetry as evidence in court. I am not kidding. Whoever thinks poetry doesn't have power, think again. As a result, in 2015, he was awarded the Nora and Ted Sterling Prize in support of controversy. In 2019, he was awarded the Latner Writers Trust of Canada Poetry Prize, which recognized the body of his work. I'm going to quote the jury, who commented about his work thus. Through six collections of poems, Stephen Collis has achieved something remarkable, an invigorating body of work that convincingly addresses both the urgency of the present moment and the long echoes of our historical and lyrical past. End quote. That body of work extends to the present moment, to the book we speak about in today's interview, A History of the Theories of Rain. This is my interview with Stephen Collis. Stephen, welcome to Getting Lit with Linda. It's really great to have you here. Hi, Linda, and it's wonderful to be here. Thanks for asking. First, allow me to say how much I love this collection. It's, to my mind, this extraordinary balance between irony and anxiety, whimsy and weight. On the one hand, it seeks this kind of mathematical precision about dealing with a global crisis while inching feelingly along at trying to find a solution in the future imperfect. So I found myself laughing and nodding, walking in stride alongside your poems. I, I felt oddly comforted. Um, at the experience of the kinds of anxieties and tensions that the poems also expressed. So thank you for these poems. Let me start by saying that. Thank you. Well, you're welcome. (laughs) I mean, I'm surprised by the comfort. (laughs) I like that. I I almost often feel like that's the last thing maybe um, that would come from this work. So I'm I'm actually kind of surprised and, and, and glad to hear that. The comfort, I think, Thank you. The the comfort comes, I think, from the sense that I don't feel so alone in thinking the way that I do. Right. Ah, well said. Yeah. <laughs> but not in many other ways. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's a Dion Brand book where she says, you know, I I have nothing soothing to say or something like that. And I, I definitely <laughs> felt that with this book. I have nothing soothing to say. <laughs> no, it's very clear. But I was soothed by the fact that we feel the same, that there is nothing soothing to right, say. Right. Yep. So... I'd like to get to the title of the collection first, yeah. A History of the Theories of Rain. But before even doing that, I thought, is there a history of the theories of Stephen Collis? <laughs> <laughs> Drop out the word theories, and then I guess so. <laughs> All right. Is there, talk to me about the, the title, the actual title, A History of the Theories of Rain. Yes. Well, um, two things to say right off the top about it. Uh, one, that it came very late in the game. That I, I, there was a late title change in in the manuscript. Is um, right? Yeah, and two, uh, it's appropriated. So I, I didn't I didn't make up the title, but it, it fits perfectly because it's the title of a, a meteorological textbook from the mid twentieth century. Mm-hmm. And part of one thing I found fascinating about that is that you know of course it doesn't mention climate change anywhere in it, uh, but just mm-hmm. this the thought of the weather right before the era in which the weather seems to have gone mad and we've all become absolutely ang- anxious about weather. It seemed like the perfect title to pilfer um, and attach to my book. <laughs> I rather think it is. What was the original title? 
so of, you... of my book. Um, yes. Well, what it changed a few times, and I was never a hundred percent certain. And my editor at the press was always like, "Yeah, I don't know if that's quite it yet." Um, I think the last title it had, working title it had, um, mm. was um, uh, "The Age of Endarkenment." Endarkenment, <laughs> like enlightenment, but endarkenment. Yeah, that's a line that comes up in the collection. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. So I, I kept that in there. Maybe it's a little bit of DNA that's still in there, maybe <laughs> or something. But I wasn't sure about that, and the publisher wasn't sure about it. So um, they asked me to think again, and I just latched upon a very old poem I had lying around that I'd never really used. I went, oh, this would mm. actually fit in this book and provide a title. Oh, it's great. It's super. Absolutely. I love it. It leads to my next question, because, of course, you are talking about climate change for I think a more soothing way of putting it I I kept thinking when I was reading your collection what do your poems think about the apocalypse (laughs) they they, I think they think there's good music to be made there in in, in the language of the apocalypse and the the affect of the apocalypse maybe too because I I don't know that the poems have their have an ethics Um, that's maybe too much to ask of, of the poems anyhow yeah, and I think, you know, climate change, but so much climate grief, too, I think is what I was oh, wanting to well pause and, 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 and allow to happen, because I've been, you know, an activist, I guess, for a while, and, and speaking to the media, and you're sort of quoting data and statistics and quoting IPCC reports, and mm-hmm. uh, but you're never pausing to sort of really let sink in what those things are actually saying and what that might imply, I guess. Uh, so I, I really wanted to pause and sort of allow the grief to to give it space, I guess, in the language. But I think, as you note, and I hope that's true, that there it, it's sort of there's sort of a dialectic going on, I guess, between um, I did some of the humor or lightness in it, which is partially because of the absurdity, I think, mm-hmm. of these of the calculus, right, of of doing the math. There's this absurdity, you know, like well, what what if it was okay, not 1.5, what if it's two degrees warmer? No, wait, what if it's three? What does that look like? What does four look like? Uh, what what date are those, are we going to hit those um, boundaries or those markers? If P happens, then Q. Yeah, just like <laughs> yeah. one of your poems, right? Which I thought was yeah, yeah. also great. Um, yeah. You've just mentioned that, you were, that you've spoken to the media, and I know you have this kind of activist background. Um, I wonder if you could speak a little bit about the intersection between your activism and your poetry. And in fact, the listeners will already have heard um, me refer to your involvement with Kendra Morgan. I wonder if you could speak a little bit about that. Sure. I mean, I guess the the longer history of the theories of Stephen Collis is that uh, <laughs> uh, someone growing up on the West Coast and uh, growing up in a very lucky way, being able to spend a lot of time outside with my father. I'm, I'm the youngest of seven children. And by the oh, time- I was growing up, uh, my father had the opportunity to do like one-on-one things with a child, which I don't think he ever got to do with any of the others, um, because I was a real sort of distant caboose. So we could um, (laughs) do the things he liked to do, which are just get in a boat on a a lake or the ocean or a river and go places and just be in in the bush. So I just grew up around, you know, sort of immersed in the natural world as you have access to, Mm. very luckily here on the West Coast. Um, and loving it. And then when I started hearing about things back in the 80s, maybe that were going on around logging and getting worried about that and wanting to do something about that and, and doing some things, <laughs> um, it just, I guess it's always just been a presence. Mm. But like anyone else, you go on with your life and sometimes it intervenes and you engage with it. And sometimes it's not as as present and you're busy because you're 
doing the other things you do. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think really um, sort of big shared political events here on the West Coast were an inspiration to get me going again or a, a trigger of some kind. So things like the opposition to the, to the Olympics in 2010, which of course those kind of big spectacles always have a huge impact on the most marginalized people and the, the places they come into. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the next year with Occupy in 2011, and there were all these political things happening. And I, I was involved a little bit in Occupy Vancouver and wrote about it a little bit, mm-hmm. the Occupy movement. Um, but coming out of that, we had this little like uh, environmental justice uh, committee that I, I joined up with, when, which had several Indigenous people involved in it, and mm-hmm. they seemed to be doing interesting things. And we kept going long after Occupy had disappeared as a little collective doing actions no and kidding. being very politically active. Yeah, so I, I've been around that for a while. And, and then and then the Enbridge pipeline, that proposal in northern BC, friends who were activists and friends who were activist poets were very concerned. And we got really active around that issue. We published a little, an anthology called The End Pipeline uh. of poetry in opposition to the pipeline. Mm-hmm. And it came out maybe 20 13 now, I want to say. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Actually, I have to go, go back and check. So it's just been a, this running presence. And then in 2014, yeah, suddenly it was, there's this new pipeline <laughs> raising its ugly head. Oh, and yeah. that's, that one happened to be coming right at SFU where I teach and boring a hole right underneath the Can mountain um, at our school. Yeah. So it was crazy. And a number of us uh, immediately threw ourselves into talking about that and speaking to the media and raising the concern. Um, that this was happening and this was the last thing we should be doing Indeed. at the time of climate change, um, which was my motivation all along, or one of the main reasons for my opposition had to do with climate change. So yeah, that that just, you know, things <laughs> transpired there. A uh, number of us got sued. I can't um, believe it. They, yeah, it's so bizarre. <laughs> you know, they, they even, their lawyers in court um, read some of my writing. <laughs> It wasn't really really a poem, but they called it a poem. They entered it in evidence as a, as a poem. Was there a debate? Uh, I'm sorry, uh, we have to remove the evidence because it's it's been misidentified in terms of its genre. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Wouldn't have that. I mean, that would have been good, but unfortunately not. But uh, but it left me with a wonderful record when I could get a, a transcript from that trial and go look at this hilarious interpret. You know, the, the oil companies' lawyers doing literary analysis, a close reading of a poem to pr- prove that it showed I was the horrible person encouraging people to, to, to stop their pipeline from being built. You know, and talking to the, like the, I was on the new, you know, the new, new, new news hour or something like that, that day at, at court. And I, and I brought this up on the news and the, the anchor of CTV or whatever, something like that said, oh, they, they thought that was hysterical that, that they'd read a poem. And, and she said, what rhymes with climate change is the first thing that they asked me. Um, <laughs> so, Everyone can see how absurd that was. Oh, yeah. But I did think, you know, uh, good day for poetry. Bad day for me, maybe, but good day for poetry. <laughs> Indeed, a good day for poetry. I was thinking when I came across that factual bit, I thought, there, there's the power of poetry. It does have power, or they were they were clearly threatened by something. Yeah, yeah. And so it was a good day for poetry. Not a good day for you, I, I recognize that. <laughs> Not not because I, I they wanted five and a half million dollars from me, which I didn't really have oh handy. My. So <laughs> uh, the resolution wasn't that you owed clearly five point whatever million. No 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 no. They, they they actually dropped it when they got what they want, which is they got their testing done, um, and so then they dropped the case because it it was a slap suit very clearly before we had any slap suit legislation here in BC. Oh, or, interesting. Like, before slap suit legislation came back on the books after that. Well, so yeah. so in effect, you did accomplish something. 
Maybe. Yeah, maybe. Mm. That, that would be good. I, I, I haven't thought too carefully about what, what the direct correlation there is, but there, there is some correlation, I'm sure. Well, this is now we've been uh, uh, looped away from your poetry, <laughs> so let's bring it back to your, your collection. Sure. I was wondering how much you conceived of this collection as an indictment of our passivity or our failure to respond to a global crisis. Would you characterize it that way? I guess in part. Um, as as I said, you know, it's it's about grief, and I'm I'm a lot of us feel grief, and and grief can be incapacitating, I suppose, in part. I mean, certainly, I you know, after that tangle with a um, oil company, I kind of wanted to step back mm -hmm. a little bit and reconsider and, and think of other things, and and other projects um, came along in the wake of that pipeline stuff that gave me new things to think about. So that was probably good um whether it's an indictment i mean i i think i think it's an indictment um ah, that's really hard to say i, I hesitate to, to call it an indictment because I, I i don't think it's like i certainly don't think it's any individual's fault for mm -hmm. instance and, and you know so thinking of things like conceptual things like the anthropocene you know this the era of human beings and it's human beings that have this terrible pr propensity um, to simply want too much and consume too much and and do so um, blithely and and ignorantly and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think that's um, a good explanation. Obviously, there's, there's a little bit of that, but, you know, the explanation is is a, an old one and it feels, it feels to me anyhow, and it's structural and it's about inequality and exploitation. Mm -hmm. um, and there, there are um, forces at work in the world, economic forces, uh, latched onto state forces that enable the overproduction and the overconsumption that we're all encouraged to participate in. Yes. Uh, yes, yes, we could be stronger, but it's awfully hard <laughs> to, to to refuse what we're told sometimes. Oh, just just don't do that, and everything will be fine. It's all up to the consumer; they can make their own choices. Not so simple a uh, world, I don't think. No. Um, so, I, and I think if if there's any indictment, it's it's of the a kind of crazy thing that human beings are prone to. And that's this, this kind of insane calculus, right. Of, of trying to um, figure out exactly what we can get away with, you know, instead of going, Oh, there's, there's a real basic problem here with how we relate to the natural world. Instead we go, yeah, but what if we just did this little bit and only let it warm that much. And, Oh, you know, 2000 or a hundred years from now, well, you know, who cares? <laughs> My sentiments. Exactly. I've, I actually had a conversation with someone recently who was saying something like, well, when the water levels rise to X, Y, and Z, and I'm thinking we're going to let the water levels rise. Yeah. Why aren't we throwing ourselves at the problem to prevent that from happening? It's yeah. people are resigned to it. Yeah. And the, the resignation is in itself a problem from my point of view. Yeah, exactly. Um, there's this incredible moment, you know, late last year when um, Greta Thunberg was speaking at that, that last climate big conference. Yes. And she would quote things that prime ministers and presidents, leaders saying that she would just go blah, 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 blah. And I kind of feel that way too. Even in writing this book, poetry kind of becomes the blah 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 as it were not, not that it's nonsensical but it's it's taking the I know, that may not sound very good Stephen Collins says the poetry is just a bunch of blah 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 um, <laughs> uh, but if you know what I mean it's I do I do yeah it's standing in the place of an absence there's, there's this there's this meaningless use of language and and poetry puts itself in that position and says well let's look at language let's 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 look at the absurdity of these words we're using
Um, mm. but let's, let's take this seriously for a minute rather than simply making empty statements all the time. Poetry makes us look at something with which we're familiar in a brand new way. Yeah. And so what I, I felt about your collection is that it, we're so used to the narratives or the tropes about climate change yeah. and, and the looming environmental crisis. We've heard it all before. But what was so refreshing about your collection was the way that it was articulated. I felt like you put the finger on the pulse of everyone's anxiety. Ah, nice. And and laid it bare. Yeah. yeah. That's what I feel like it accomplishes for me. Oh, that's, that's what um, And so that was this, the part that I think that was soothing. Like, yes, this is how I feel. Like this. Yeah, yeah. And that was part one of my interview with Stephen Collis. You can listen to the next episode to hear more of that interview. For now, here's a takeaway of this episode. Allow me to introduce you to a young, burgeoning poet named Isabella Wang. She's an appropriate subject for this takeaway, given that she's been studying at Simon Fraser University and is, in fact, doing some collaborative work with Stephen Collis himself. She's already published a book of poetry titled Pebble Swing, published by Nightwood Editions. And in the summer of 2021, she had several poems titled The Choreography of Forgetting included in the Capilano Review. She really is a tremendously gifted writer whose lines are poised between tender compassion and repressed violence. I couldn't help but notice that she conjures up images of ice and snow frequently in her work as in this gem titled Elegy for Winter from Pebble Swing. Here's a little sampling for you. I know it's difficult to hear another poem about grieving, so I want to be a lot of things good, and maybe the snow does too. Maybe that's why it clings on to our mittens. Maybe it wants to feel the warm comfort of wool. Be that comfort to strangers, the twine that knits itself around the negative spaces of longing and marrow. And then there is this, from the choreography of forgetting. Winter thaws around the fringes of a country, forgetting its maps, body and political thought repuzzled to become bordered on someone else's land. Does a country retain its form? Remember a thing like that. Does it wander familiar streets under new names asking, Who am I? Who am I? Again, that was Isabella Wang from The Choreography of Forgetting. Wang is a poet whose work I strongly recommend you pick up now and continue to look for over the next several years. That was today's episode. Please join me in the next one to hear the second part of my interview with Stephen Collis. Thanks for tuning in, my dear listeners. That was Getting Lit with Linda, hosted by Linda Mora. If you have a topic you would like to hear covered, write to us at gettinglitwithlinda at gmail.com. Until next time, we hope you continue to get lit.